Welcome, listeners and thrill seekers, to this edition of the Feeling Film Podcast. I am Patch, your intrepid mountain guide, and with me, hoping not to run into 90s villains, hellbent on finding large cases of money, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Yeah, one villain. One villain singular, I think we'd be okay yeah. with, but multiple villains, we might be in I trouble. Mean, <laughs> this this movie gave us a little bit of a challenge. We, we, had, we had a crew... And at some point, I didn't realize, you know, who was the actual bad guy here. I think there were there were a lot of takers for the role, yeah. and a, a little contest here by the end of the movie. I think we came, we got down to to one, but it was touch and go there for a while. Who it was going to be? Well, intrepid mountain guy, do we or do we not have wingsuits? Important question. Uh, in twenty twenty three, absolutely, <laughs> or twenty twenty four. Excuse me, happy new year. Uh, we definitely do. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely okay. updating the uh, the the gear for us. We are not just getting okay. getting uh, <laughs> mysterious bolt guns that allow us to you know climb rocks. We are getting wingsuits so that we can we can actually take off if we need to at any given point. So we're in the January slump of movies. Uh, it's okay to say that. I think it's fair as film critics to just call this what it is. It's the dump because it's not just you know metaphorically speaking like it's dumpy movies. It's just they're dumping a lot of stuff that just doesn't make sense for January. It's not Oscar stuff because nothing's really worthy. And it's way too early to be thinking about the summer blockbusters and things like that. So around this time of year, historically, we've been creative, Aaron and I have, with what are we going to cover? Aaron, you've gotten the opportunity to uh, to gear up for film festivals. Uh, grateful that you get to do that. And you're actually on your way out to Utah in uh, a couple of weeks, the mountainous terrain, the beauty out there. So we thought, how cool would it be to take the next couple of weeks and talk about a couple of 90s survival movies that take place in the cold wintry mountains we just got a little bit of snow and ice here in arkansas so it was fitting that cliffhanger was one of two in the next couple of weeks that we're going to be talking about what's really funny and i didn't think about this until after we made the plan was that netflix finally just dropped society of the snow which i watched back in early december for awards purposes but they actually just put it out on the service and you talk about a mountain survival movie. <laughs> I mean, okay. like that is a mountain survival movie. And I was thinking, maybe when I get back, if we don't have anything to cover, we should we should dig into that one. But we should do like a dual episode where we actually watch both Society of the Snow and Alive, which is the movie based on the same exact story, but starring white dudes. And we kind of compare and contrast them as I we, like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, let's it would. Be keeping with the theme as yeah, well. Yeah, we'll keep that. We'll... There's no cannibalism in cliffhanger, <laughs> but <laughs> there there almost might be based off of some of the stuff that we're seeing. But yeah, John Lithgow, I would believe he would. Go I, there. He is. <laughs> we'll get to him. We'll definitely get to him. So yeah, we are we are covering Cliffhanger, the 1993 thriller, headed up by uh, Sly Stallone, as, as you mentioned, John Lithgow, and uh, several others that. Um, are somewhat popular, you know, early 90s stars that kind of made their way. Um, one of my favorites, Michael Rooker, who has become famous for his role in the Guardians uh, franchise, but definitely one of my favorite 90s stars as he was playing alongside our friend Tom Cruise in Days of Thunder as Rowdy Burns. Love Michael Rooker in that. Anyway, all right, well, this is your official spoiler alert. Uh, check it out, Cliffhanger. It's been around for a minute, 1993. So... From here on out, we're going to be talking about it in detail. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Hope you don't get spoiled. You will, but hope you don't feel bad about it. So, all right, here we go. Okay, 
Aaron, this has been called, this movie specifically has been called The Die Hard of the Mountains. And I want to preface this by asking a question. Um, is this accurate? Is it a compliment? I know that there have been other movies, Toy Soldiers being another one of the 90s that sort of die hard in a prep school. And it's interesting because Die Hard has become one of those movies that things are compared to. And I wonder from your perspective, I'll kind of give my opinion after you, but is that a good thing? Is it something that the formula works and let's just repackage it as something else? Or is this like, stop doing this. Die Hard was a great movie. Let's not try to beat that story into the ground by putting it in a different setting. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it definitely has some similarities to the Die Hard in a Die Hard on a formula because you're taking what is generally considered an everyman, I think. When you look at John McClane in Die Hard, I think part of the appeal of that character is that it's not a supremely dangerous man on the outside. Like you're not looking at someone who is a military trained Navy SEAL in this situation. You're looking at just a regular old beat cop, right? And and that that's what makes the survival more interesting to us as an audience right. in all of these situations. Toy soldiers, it's yeah. just some prep school kids trying to get by, right? <laughs> yeah. And I and I think it's sort of similar here because you get the key elements of that formula it are a confined space of which you cannot get out but as the hero they have to manipulate the space and use secret tunnels and, and use the space to their advantage against the enemy and here we have such a similar concept of like a Hans Gruber coming in to steal money from Nakatomi Plaza You've got John Lithgow stealing money. I mean, the plane, we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But like the plane is, that set piece is awesome. Yeah. And so they get the money on the mountain. And now it's so similar because he's got these goons and he's being harassed. And he's like, ends up calling him back and forth on the radio, like trying to figure out where he's at. And he's causing chaos because he knows the terrain and John Lithgow doesn't. So yes, I think it's very much like it. And I absolutely do not think it is a criticism i think it is a compliment yeah i think there is a way to pay homage to an idea without copying it directly and i think this movie does enough that's different from just being diehard that it's its own thing completely as well yeah i, I don't disagree at all i think uh, you're spot on with all that and and i would say that it's why we like the Fast and the Furious, even though it's considered a direct knockoff of Point Break. You're taking the same idea, undercover cop who falls in love with someone from the crew and has a hard time justifying taking down the bad guy because of the connection there. That idea is good. And just because it's repackaged in a different setting, I think says a lot about the success of that idea. And it also amplifies the success of the setting. And so when we look at this mountainous setting, I mean, I like Die Hard a lot, but I like Cliffhanger a lot too. And part of the reason is because of the setting. I love the fact that we're centered around these mountaineers who know this terrain, who talk about going, oh yeah, go up so-and-so's ladder and you know, make sure you go down you know, Peak's shaft and things like that and just all these different things. Sorry, <laughs> I don't know, whatever. That, that sounds <laughs> Meet me at the old turnstile up what? in Dominic's cabin. Exactly, yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and there were times, Aaron, when I'm watching this and I'm going, like, 
one, how do you know this? But you you know the terrain, so that makes sense. But then you go into like this cabin that's sort of a souvenir shop. Like at some point near the end of the movie, um, I think it's Stallone's character who is taking down. Um, it's not it's not Quaylen, but it's Travers, and he's in like this almost like this Hoth. Uh, base where it's like a bridge and he's underwater and i'm like where are these places that people are going to traverse to that actually have like like man-made structures it, it fascinated me uh, not only to know that these characters knew where to go which says a lot about how they overcome this objective or overcome this thing of beating the bad guys but also the fact that there are these places that may or may not exist but are useful in their in their resources and i think that's what attracts me to a movie like cliffhanger is that it's big action but it's also the setting that feels very much foreign to me like i would never be a mountaineer i would never do this um i've gone rappelling before and that's the extent of any kind of climbing that i'm gonna do i've been to a climbing gym no way that i'm gonna carry like eighteen thousand bolts on my on my uh around my chest or anything like that because I wouldn't know how to do that. And I think that because of that ignorance, when I watch this for the first time, I am more forgiving of knowing more about the movie in terms of like its absurdity and like you'd never have this, like that bolt thing that 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 Stallone's character like puts into the rock, like that doesn't exist. It does not compute at all. At the same time, we joked earlier, we're in 2024 now and there are ways to escape like a wingsuit uh, as opposed to like jumping off of a mountain, like your base jumping and all those things to me, I think bring to light what the time frame of this movie was amplifying. So let me just read off several of the top tens, this being one of them of 93 in the U S you've got films like Jurassic park, the fugitive, the firm and the Pelican brief. These are all movies. Uh, two of them were by, uh, by our man, John Grisham, you know, based off of books. But they're are these top ten top cr- critical U- U- top U.S. 10 U.S. Money? grossing? Yeah, these were yeah of the of nineteen ninety three nineteen ninety three. Uh, these oh, are the top. All those movies came out in the ninety three. Wow. It was a huge year. Yeah, this is this is bizarre. <laughs> yeah, so Cliffhanger sits in the middle of this at like six or seven of these top ten. I didn't name obviously all top ten, but Jurassic Park I think led the way. But you've got these other movies that when I look at Cliffhanger as a as a film it seems to fit really well into this genre or not genre, but into these types of films. Um, I was trying to tell you offline, uh, but our, our, like our voice texting service is poo. And so I'll, I'll tell you now, I was listening to an episode of the rewatchables, a great podcast. I know that you introduced me to, it's a great, uh, it's a, it's a great one. Uh, Bill Simmons heads it up. One of the guys was talking about uh, they were covering in the line of fire, and he was talking about Renee Russo, Russo and how great she is, and how she had a slew of movies in this decade. Uh, the Thomas Crown Affair being one of the big ones, Major League being another one. And his counterpart was saying uh, he was asking the question about Brie Larson, how she hasn't quite had that same success, even though she's that same kind of actress. She was great in Short Term Twelve. Uh, she had a couple other ones, and then she hit Ms. Uh, Captain Marvel, and things just sort of like, what? I don't really know what we're doing, and now she's in Fast 10. The long and short of it is his counterpart was saying, the 90s, these slew of movies weren't about trying to be a big blockbuster or a small indie. They were fine with being what they were and being honest and being completely okay with their identity. 
And I think that Cliffhanger, Total Recall, RoboCop, these movies that were really kind of over the top in their set pieces, in their premises, they knew that their audience was not trying to nitpick. I think that the early days of the internet not existing, or at least not being so prominent, helped with these movies because we weren't trying to figure out, really, could someone jump off a plane to another plane and do that? By the way, yes, one of the greatest set pieces in the world. Practical effects, king right there. But I think that's what makes this movie successful, Aaron, is the time frame that it existed in. You could, you could say, does it hold up? I mean, it holds up for me. It's a great movie. But I think the reason why is because it doesn't apologize for being what it is. And that's a loud, bombastic action thriller with great dialogue, great villains, and lots of fun. Like, this is a movie you'd want to see in the theater. You want to have your popcorn ready. And then when it's over, you're like, let's go have some dinner over at Applebee's, you know, or wherever you were in the 90s. It's it's a lot of fun. And I think that's one of the core reasons why we go to movies is because we want to have a good time. And sometimes I think we forget about that because it has to be a $400 million big budget, like in your face thing, or it has to be something indie that's going to make some kind of mark on your heart, which are both fine. But there seems to be no room for those middle ground movies like this. And I think that I kind of mourn the the loss of those and not seeing many of those these days. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm with you. I think you nailed it. I think the internet killed a lot of things in life, changed a whole way in which we interact with each other and with media yeah, yeah. in general. You're so right, because instead of thinking about the silly parts of it that might be nitpicky we would leave the theater on a high wanting to go tell our friends dude you gotta see what stallone does in this movie and there are still movies that that do this but i think it's harder for them to be accepted i'll give you an example i'm going to see it just next week is this movie called the beekeeper have you seen a trailer for it i have seen bits of it i have not seen like I mean, it's about Jason Statham being a literal beekeeper, but also the beekeepers is the name of like a super secret spy agency. (laughs) And people saw it on Saturday. And this is what you're saying is exactly what they were saying. They were like, it's Jason Statham. He's kicking butt. It's got incredible 90s one liners throughout. It knows exactly what it wants to be and nothing more. And it's a little bit of a silly premise, but it allows for opportunity to have so much of these fun dialogue and this, this action. And we eat that up and you're right. Nowadays there's just the, the room for these kind of films has compacted and it's either gotta be able to make you 500 plus million dollars or it's gotta be like an indie drama because studios aren't willing to pay money to make these. And part of it may be also we're losing, I think, a, an entire generation of directors were aging into these new directors who aren't used to doing it. Like you have to be willing to go make these movies on, I don't know what cliffhangers budget was, but I guarantee you it was like probably 20, 25, 30, $40 million, you know, maybe 50 because of special effects back then. But it's not like cliffhanger was like, here's $200 million, go make cliffhanger. And now your expectation is that cliffhanger has to make you a billion at the box office. no, all I had to do was like double its money and it was good, you know, and that wasn't so hard to do. But these days, the expectations, the swing of expectations has just kind of killed our ability to get stuff like this. Or they're made by the studios 
who essentially have gone on to basically treat it like AI, like a Jurassic yeah. world where it's like, Oh, we're not going to actually make something new and interesting in that same vein. We're just going to try and repackage and repurpose everything you liked before. Cause you'll like it again. And it, comes off so false that most of us are not falling. So I want to I, I want to support that by saying that's different than taking a successful premise and repackaging it in a different setting, which is what this movie has done essentially as being the die hard inside in the mountains. It knows what was successful, but it's a refresh and it's adding to what was good about Die Hard. Again, same thing with Toy Soldiers. Ridiculous premise. But I love movies that take place in high school. I especially love prep schools. Big fan of Dead Poet Society. Uh, big fan of school ties. And I'm like, why not add some machine guns and some foreign uh, terrorists to the to the mix? That sounds great. That makes for a fun action movie. And so I think that you're absolutely right that there's a miss when it comes to the studio having a budget or having almost a department for movies that are fine. And that fine needs to be considered not a four-letter word, but actually a good thing. Having a movie that's fine, this is part of the essence of our show, of our podcast. It's it's good to have movies that they don't have to be five stars to be worthy to be made. And I think that's what's been lost, is that in 2024, we live in an age where content is now sort of usurping quality and quality, the, word, the, the idea of quality, the definition is sort of changing a little bit. Like what is considered quality? Uh, our friend Patrick Willems, I say our friend because he's been on the podcast before, but he's a huge video essayist, big fan of him and what, what he does for, uh, for, the, for the world of filmmaking, does a lot of great commentary on filmmaking. And, and he is really sophisticated when it comes to kind of breaking that stuff down. Like, is everything supposed to be content? Because if it is, now we're we're disenfranchising the people that are actually trying to be creative. Like those that are not just putting out videos every, every week to entertain because it's cheap or easy to do. Uh, and I'm not discounting guys like PewDiePie who are, who made them their, their money off of people just enjoying what they did, which is watching and commenting on, on video games. No, no loss to that. No, no disrespect to that. But what about those that are trying to be creative? If everything is content, You've now diminished that. And I think that's where if you put a movie like Cliffhanger today in 2024, people would come out of the theater going like I could have made that. No, you couldn't have. It's not that it has to be original ideas. It's not that it has to be like impressive to the masses. It just has to work. And I think at the end of the day, a movie like this works. Is it on the back of Die Hard? No, I don't think it is. I think it's inspired by and takes a, a similar premise. But it adds to and makes it, you know, makes the idea different in a way that is very entertaining. Again, you may not like Bruce Willis. You may not like a setting like that or a character like Hans. So, okay. Do you like the mountains? Do you like snowboarding? Do you like, uh, you know, base jumping? Okay, this is for you. Like, if you're a big fan of Stallone, you're going to go see this. And I think that's the other point is that you have characters or actors like Sylvester Stallone who were pulling in audiences. And a movie like this, without him, I think wouldn't have worked as well. Like, I don't know who in the 90s was as big as he was. Uh, maybe Bruce Willis. Uh, could could you have put him in this? Maybe. But I think it was great to see him along with this cast of people like John Lithgow, who plays almost against type. Because he, while he does 
play a villain. I think his only villain role that I've seen that I'd seen him in at that point was Santa Claus the movie, where he plays more of a comedic role. He was also in Harry and the Hendersons, and he went on to do things like Third Rock from the Sun. He has a bit part in uh, you know a, a movie that that I just I, I watch every year New Year's Eve. It's you know it's not a great movie, but he has a bit part that's just really goofy. And so typically he's not a character or an actor that you would see like playing a villain. But you made a great point, Aaron. He's a lot like Hans in that he's not someone who's going to be a threat physically. Like the body count in this movie was 17. He was responsible for one. And his kill was hugely impactful. Like he was playing a chess game with Travers. And I love that moment, not the kill from a moral standpoint necessarily, but I love the fact that he's like, I just, I just put my, your, your king in check by killing this pilot that she has to make a sacrifice. And I really don't care about anything but money. That's chilling coming from a guy who is normally like yelling and being eccentric. Like, okay, I, I, I don't believe that, that you're a, you know, just that you're not, a, not a threat. You're a threat for sure. And it's moments like that, that I think make this movie a little bit more interesting because of the fact that someone like Lithgow doesn't come across historically as an actor, that's going to be that much of a, of a threat. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that definitely makes it a lot more fun. And uh, I, I don't remember him from before this, like when I first saw it. So now my understanding of him includes everything he's done since then. And I think he went on to become, you know, with this included, he's a great villain <laughs> over several different roles. And I, I just love how completely in control he is. He's a, a lit fuse, right? He, Like you said, he doesn't go off except for once. And I think that makes him all the more scary because when he finally does, like you, you I, I, you're always well aware of what could happen. And he may have too. I can't remember if he throws the guy out of the airplane or not. Somebody does at the very beginning when the sniper is trying to shoot the guy and he gets shot and they're like, we're, we're losing altitude or something or I don't know. Like, what are we going to do to him? It's going to, we're going to have to get him to a hospital during the plane yeah. heist. And he's like, yeah, we ain't got time for that. And they just throw him out yeah. the window. Um, I don't know if he did that or if he was responsible for it, but you quickly understand that everyone is expendable to this guy. And that is a very scary person to deal with. Uh, but that's part of what makes this movie work so well for me is that the Travers character played by Rex somebody, uh, Rex Lynn. I don't know anything else really that he's in, but for me, like he makes this movie in such a huge way because you have two villains and they're playing against each other. And, and rarely, rarely, Patrick, do you get a villain that is this smart. And man, the 90s, I was thinking back to like a bunch of the action movies that we love, like the face-offs and the, the Con Airs and The Rock. Like the villains, they always are like this. They're so well drawn. He, from the very jump in the airplane, when he takes it over and he begins to go send the money over, he sends the money first. And I thought to myself when that was happening, Wow, that's smart. And sure enough, the dialogue, the script calls it out. Somebody's like, hey, why are you sending the money first? Who's going to send it? And he's like, because I know that you're not going to let me come over if I don't send the money first. Like, So we immediately understand this guy's, he's thinking. 
And he he's so smart. He's so self-aware of the fact that Quaylen could betray him at any moment and would if given the opportunity that I actually find myself at times in this movie somewhat rooting for him, even though he's a jerk, too. And by the end, I'm kind of glad he's dead. But it's a really fun push and pull that most movies don't have because you don't have two villains on the same team fighting both with and against each yeah, other. Yeah, I mean, there's something really great about seeing them. Um, and, I, and I took that comment because you'd said it. Uh, you'd watch this movie before I did for the podcast, and I kept that in mind. What I love about that is that both Travers and Quaylen have two different approaches to the to the same end. They both want the money, but Travers is. You said that Quaylen's like a lit fuse, but he's a controlled lit fuse. Like he's just like slowly going down, and then eventually he just explodes. When, <laughs> I love it when Walker just throws the bag of money. And shreds it in the uh, in the in the blades of the helicopter, but from the jump, Travers is constantly yelling, like constantly mad. Like he has so many anger issues when it comes to like everything is just big to him. Everything is just like a a yelling match. And I joked offline when I said that between Travers and Kinnett, played by Leon, both of those guys should be like in a buddy cop movie entitled. Stop being mad because they're both just so angry. No, neither of them seem to have like a a level below seven on on the on the dial. And I think when you when you pit Travers against Quaylen, it is this explosive like not Jekyll and Hyde, but more like this odd couple on an eccentric scale because they're both pretty much nuts. They both pretty much want the same thing, but how they get there is so like conflicted. And I think part of that is what led to their demise, what led to the demise of these folks, because for the longest time you had, you appeared to have Quaylen as the leader. And then you had that pivotal moment with the helicopter where Quaylen kills uh, Crystal, played by Carolyn Goodall, another actress that I only knew from a couple of things, uh, a nice role in Hook. And now she's like <laughs> beating people up and, you know, flying planes and whatnot. But when she gets killed, you can tell that Quaylen's actually the smarter dude in terms of like he's strategic. He knows what's going on. He he kind of pivots here and there. Whereas Travers, my favorite moment is when he just goes section eight, as he says, you know, I don't at one point he's talking to when he's talking to Quaylen on the radio. Quaylen's like, no names. You know, we're on an open frequency. And I don't give a crap, Eric F and Quaylen. I mean, he is just all it's of, phenomenal. I it's love it. It's so great. Yeah. And that's one of the moments I remember because he has lost it. He has absolutely lost it. And when he throws the the tracker because he knows the money's gone, now he's on a manhunt. And now you've got this guy who has this military training and he is now dangerous for different reasons than Quaylen. Yeah, that's exactly. Like that it's he talks about that. Like he has experience. He's an FBI dude or not fbi i forget what he works for it's like the department of money or i don't know what the department of the treasury sorry i know there's a better but a better word for that it's not the united states department of money but um <laughs> i think it's the department of the treasury i like that, that name they work department, for. Of like treasury the department of money <laughs> i'm gonna go work for the department of money but but yeah essentially like he's the equivalent of like an fbi agent or whatever and so he he has that knowledge and i think to your point Part of it is that Quaylen holds the cards. He he has more cards. All 
all that Travers has is the tracker. That's it. The moment, and he knows it, the moment that the money is found and able to be gotten into the case, he is useless. And Quaylen has more opportunities to leverage throughout their little psychological mind game. But it's great because like they're doing that infighting as they're collectively trying to deal with these two rogues on a mountain, you know, by our two, two heroes. And it's just a, such a fun dynamic. Oh man. It's, it's great. And I think all of this is sort of accentuated by the, the villainous crew. I thought that while, while they started with like seven, I think on the plane before they're, and you're right. Um, Quaylen threw the guy out. He said, you know, what should we do this with this guy? Who's hers? Like get him to a hospital. And he tosses him out. So I guess his body, you know, he's responsible for two, but, the uh, the rest the the main other baddies in here you got Kinnett played by Leon again I think what surprises me about this movie is that those actors that I was that I knew as nice guys are in tamer roles I got introduced to this movie later and so Leon I knew as as uh, um, the guy from Cool Runnings you know, as, as our main guy. Um, oh, okay. And, and yeah, so to yeah, see yeah. him play against that was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's just, it was very bizarre to see these characters. And then you've got uh, Craig Fairbass who plays Delmar, the, uh, the, the, the soccer guy. And I, I think that they're very much stereotypical, like angry folk. It, it's, it's a great rounding out of this crew because they're all muscle. Like none of them have brains necessarily, but I think, what makes them well crystal does no, Chris, crystal is the opening yes. scene where she says we need insulin and everybody's like oh wow that's brilliant because yeah. now they're on a ticket they know they've got to get people out to yes you. but but ASAP. quaylen looks at looks at um he, he looks at travers and he goes insulin would you have thought of that so i think so, i know it's so, so it says right. two things it says one how how uh, resourceful she is but really how much more the rest of the crew relies on their muscle it's all about guns and whatnot. And that that doesn't go away. What I think makes their little moment shine in the moments that they have is the dialogue. Like you've got you've got little one liners, you've got like mean kind of threatening things. Like I think that's what Leon does really well in his scene with uh with Gabe and then with uh, with Delmar and with Delmar and Hal and their confrontation. He uses a lot of sarcasm and this great kind of soccer analogy. And I think it's appropriate to show how overpowering they can be, but also to provide an opportunity for us to say, I'm ready for you to get your comeuppance. That's what appeals to us about these thrillers is we want the bad guys to get what they deserve. And I think we get this in spades with four or five different moments. That doesn't happen a lot. Just like this movie provides two tension uh, inspired villains. It also provides multiple. It feels almost like a Friday the 13th where you're like, all right, what's your favorite kill? Except at this point, it's the bad guys that are getting killed. So you have this opportunity to get your revenge. And I think that there's a little bit of that, that, that an audience gets, uh, gets sucked into like, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree. There's just a perfectly paced, constant amount of action scene, action scene, cool kill, 
action scene. And like you said, a lot of it is the, the writing. The writing is on point. I had forgotten how good it was, but the jokes are just, I don't know, they, they hit for me nonstop. I mean, Stallone being in that little cabin and they have the money and he starts like putting it out to, to Bernie's like, Jay's cost a fortune to heat this place. <laughs> and like the movie doesn't linger on it and make, and make a big deal about it. He just says it kind of very casually like he would. And I'm bust out laughing. Cause I'm like, ah, that's hilarious. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, just dumb little stuff. Like when Gabe is skiing down the mountain on top of that goon, <laughs> I love that his face is in the snow yes. and he, he lets him fly off the cliff. He's like, gravity's a bitch, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and it's just like stupid, like little stupid stuff. And there's a couple more, but I'm going to save them for when we go over our action scenes. But I, I love that. Um, I, I think the movie does a great job of that. I think also think the one main criticism, because I actually found myself truly like loving this all the way through. The one thing that I remembered incorrectly was how much of a beef Gabe and how have over the course of the actual event on the mountain. Mm -hmm. So it's a brilliant setup. I mean, just tremendous with his girlfriend falling, you know, Stallone holding her hand and saying, you're not gonna die. And I let it slip to Tyler was watching it with me, my son for the first time. And I was like, Oh really? <laughs> and then of course, you know, he lets her go. But, um, but the tension there, right? The, immediate pro uh, like I guess the two guys no longer one of them no longer trust the other one and I misremembered that being a bigger deal and I think there was an opportunity maybe to maybe take this up just a little bit of a notch to where Hal didn't so quickly just immediately like get on the same page as Gabe yeah because I thought he was going to harbor a little more of a grudge. On one hand, I, I like it because I think it's fun that they are able to bury the hatchet. They're, they're good friends already and like they're trying to survive together. Yeah. But I do think that there's a setup there that doesn't feel like it quite has the right payoff. No, I, I don't disagree. And I think that was something that I had a question about going into this was could the movie been could the movie have been just as good without the tension between Hal and Gabe? I don't I mean, I think it would have been fine. I mean, I think everything else. You have two mountaineers who are going up to a, to to rescue. They they meet up, and it's that moment that I think it's uh, it's it's Hal who threatens to throw Gabe off the cliff, and he's like, "Yeah, just do it." That he says, "No, you'll let you know, I'll let you live. You know, it's worse or something like that." And then they go on, and you're right. It's not like they make up. There's just there's sort of that unresolved tension. But I sort of felt it got wrapped up when Gabe had to go up the cliff with only a shirt and Hal's like, watch yourself up there. I get it. They're mountaineers. They're trying to say you know, safety first, but you're right. I don't know that there was enough like tension where it didn't last as long. And, and that's where maybe it would have been a little bit more interesting if Hal had an opportunity to kill Gabe for the sake of his own survival in a similar way that Hal's girlfriend died and he chose to not There's do that. I think, you know, some yeah. poeticness there. I think that would have added a little bit more 
to the forgiveness. The other thing is, I, this happened in, I go back to Toy Soldiers, the ending is sort of abrupt. Like they they kill everybody, they get the military folks on the radio, and then they're just left on the mountain. And we're, you know, what happens uh, six months later? Does this game come? It's the least interesting part of an action movie. It story. really is. Like once the, once the threat's gone, the the story's kind of over. It's it, They're mostly build up and... Yeah, and, and I, acting, and I think, but yeah, it's hard to. But maybe that's my twenty twenty three person in there. Like, where are they now? What are they doing? I think I like having the, I like having resolution, not just that they survive, but that if you're going to tell me a story about Gabe and Hal having this tension because of this tragic incident that happened, which is a fantastic setup, by the way. Like, you don't expect that to to take place, and you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? By the time we get to the end of the movie because that tension wasn't as heightened as we wanted it to be, I think that it left me going, well, I guess they're friends. <laughs> They've lost Frank. So what happens now? I mean, it. Yeah. I didn't feel like the tension was there yeah. anymore. And the only, the callback actually occurs for Gabe with Jess mm -hmm. because they go over the edge and he has to catch her. And you get that moment of it's like, will he drop her twice? You know, like, is he going to drop his own girlfriend yeah. now also, or his wife? Um, and it doesn't hang on that tension about dropping her nearly as long as it does the girlfriend. Literally. I mean, it's it pretty quick where he's yeah. just like, okay, now she's yeah. up. <laughs> literally does not hang very long. Yeah, literally. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Just those are, that's like, seriously, it was like just a nitpick for mm -hmm. me. Um, I, I loved it. I mean, I think start to finish, I just, I had a. Freaking yeah. blast. Well, let's talk about uh, favorite bad guy kill. I mean, we have like four of these, I think, including. Uh, okay. So I'll tell you my Tyler moment now because okay. this is one of them. So we would agree the best kill goes to getting impaled on a stalactite. Had to look it up. I asked Tyler. Well, I, didn't, I, I looked it up and confirmed what Tyler told me, I should say. Uh, I said, so which one grows on the ceiling and which one grows on the ground? Because I was writing notes. <laughs> and I was like, is it a stalactite or a stalagmite? Uh, because he pushes him up into it, which Tyler's like, I think it's a tight. And I said, yeah, I think you're right. And I looked it up, confirmed. And then Tyler goes, that's a major missed opportunity, though. If I was in the movie, I would have said, good stalactite. <laughs> and I just died. I was like, that would have fit perfectly in this movie. It kind of would. Honestly. It kind of would, yeah. It really would have. So we agree that that was probably our favorite I think I, I would agree that's my favorite kill. Um, and just as a little side note, the way that I remember stalactite and stalagmi stalagmites and stalactites is stalag, G, ground, stalactite, ceiling, C. Stalactite, stalagmite. That's the way I remember it. I'm wondering if my number two is most likely going to be yours also. My, so what would your Delmar, second? and it's because of the dialogue. Delmar, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. gosh. It's so the good. Bit with <laughs> it takes so it long. Does. It's so yes. brilliant. It's so awesome. He sets it up. Striker, he's at the penalty, and the, and and knowing what I know now about soccer, like being as into it as I am, it mad so, it's such a such a great thing. And I, I mean, the the accent piece is when he dies, and Hal's line, "Season's over, asshole." <laughs> it's so great. Even before that, I wrote the whole thing. He goes, "He's like Delmar, from me to you, you're an asshole." And he goes, "Yeah, and you're a loudmouth slack punk or punk slag who's about to die." 
And then you get that great, great line. He's like, maybe, but in a minute, I'll be dead. And you will always be an asshole. <laughs> and I was just like, this is so good. Yeah. It's so yeah. good. It's, I think what makes that scene specifically great is that Rooker's character, Hal, is, has really just accepted the fact that, you know what? If he dies, he dies. It's not, he's, he's a survivalist. And sometimes you just don't survive. At some point, you don't survive. And he has nothing to lose. I love how he takes his coat off. He says, it's getting cold. You know, it's like he's ready to just rumble <laughs> with the guy. And then eventually, he, you know, he, he blows a hole in his chest and, and says that great line to end it off. Love those two. I think that's great. The, the action set pieces as a whole were pretty monumental. I, I read some, some trivia, and I think you know the same thing, that the, the, actual, the plane sequence of Travers coming across the stuntman actually did that. There were no special effects. There was no, I mean, it was all practical. I like didn't completely, know that, that's amazing. completely real. Like it was all done uh, to, to the extent that the company could not get insurance for that scene because of the liability. And I think it was Stallone or somebody else who footed the bill to have that stunt covered medically or whatever in order to have it done. So kudos to the director for being like, listen, if we're going to be big, we need to be really big. Because there were a couple of times, Aaron, where they definitely skimped on the special effects. The two guys who I thought were great, uh, who did the base jumping, there was a scene where they do their base jumping, they jump off of a mountain. Now look, I've seen base jumping before. I think it's a fantastically scary thing that I'll never do. But I love watching it. But the scene has them jumping off and then the next thing we see, it looks like they've been thrown out of a plane and they're like 10,000 feet up. I'm like, that's not right at all. <laughs> Let's see it a little bit differently. But this scene with the planes uh, is probably the best in the movie. And I think part of the reason is, is because of the fact that it really took place. Like it actually was filmed that way. And so kudos to the editing team, the cinematography, the stunt people, fantastic work but yeah absolutely real no practical no no cgi at all so you're telling me that stallone is a chump because he probably wasn't really holding that girl by the hand <laughs> over the canyon like come on as come on I guys saw a little green screen the work. I saw a little green screen when she was yelling. let's do it, let's for, do real. it for real <laughs> let's, let's <laughs> commit to your exactly. job <laughs> yeah we got to make this 90s movie the most 90s it can be i mean that's also i think an iconic opening sequence yes. like from from the beginning where we zoom in to the canyon and it's very much akin to mission impossible i don't remember three two not one but i think it's two or three maybe four no it's two or three maybe four <laughs> i don't remember which one it is but tom cruise is doing the same thing they start the movie and he's off you know free soloing like alex honnold rock climbing and that's essentially what stallone is doing working his way up and we you know get there and he's got her up climbed up to this point and now he's hurt and he can't get down. And it's so sweet because she has this teddy bear attached to her backpack. And as someone who in his adult years has now become literally terrified of heights, like it, I didn't used to be this way. It's come with age. I don't know where it happened. I remember like zip lining across the Brazilian rainforest when I was in the Navy and a young you know, a young adult. And nowadays, like watching this gives me major anxiety. I just, I can't do it. Uh, and so it, I like it from the standpoint that it conveys the terror of that really well yeah. to me. It also sets up the, the, 
when I say mixed tone, I don't mean that in a negative way. Just the the variety of things that we're gonna get that we're gonna experience. We're gonna experience thrills. We're gonna experience tension. We're also gonna experience some sarcastic dialogue. Some great one liners. Love the setup between Gabe and Hal and their friendship. It's like you know what he asks. He asks uh, Hal's girlfriend, "How did he convince you to come up here?" And she goes, "He said it was better than sex." And he goes, "Really." <laughs> just it's it's so great and the way that he describes his knee going out uh he says oh is that you know that must have been rough you know when you fell out of the bathtub or slipped in the hot tub tub. and she's like i thought you heard it in nom (laughs) in nom it's so good it's so good it sets up their friendship really well i think it creates great tension uh, for the rest of the movie because you see that they have history that they are uh and i mean i think that there's there's something to be said about being able to convey a lot of information in a creative way through this kind of exposition you set up quite a bit and you know apart from not paying it off as much in the rest of the movie with their friendship going up and down i think it's a fantastic setup to tell you so much about these four characters between uh, between gabe hal frank and jesse because they're the ones that really are the crux they're their own gang their own crew and to see they struggle, to see Frank uh, get killed, you know, one, one scene. scene, one scene of Frank painting. Yes, it, it show it gives you that emotional investment to Frank, so that when he dies, it matters right. so much more now. Um, yeah, it's it's just really well made. They're movie. like they're a family. Well, they're a family. Yeah, scripted. Yeah. That's a great line yeah. too, where he's like, he's finishing his painting and. <laughs> And I was like, what is that? So what does it look like? He goes, I don't know. He says, what normally eats a banana? A monkey. Well, this is a picture of a banana eating a monkey. Where? Right I here. Like when he, and then when they're trying, <laughs> I know. And then when they're trying to get him to go up in the mountain, she's like, I'll buy one of your paintings. <laughs> and he's like, okay. okay. <laughs> I'm in. Take me through the West Valley. There's no winds there. It's a, it's a 30 right. minute hike. Yeah. Okay, uh, one final thought: action set pieces. These are the essentially the the, the eye candy of the whole, the whole movie. Anything stand out to you? We talked about some of the kills. That's good stuff. But what beyond the the big ones that we've already talked about? Any highlights for you in terms of like uh, great action scenes that you want to mention? I think we've covered all of them. I'll just call out. I think it's funny when they first are on the mountain after they've arrived, Hal and Gabe and Gabe gets sent up to get the first case. And you know, Hal's like, don't come down. They're going to kill you. And immediately the dudes start shooting grenades uh, above their heads. (laughs) And I'm just like, you're a moron. You're going to cause an avalanche. Like this is, (laughs) that's like what you were saying is that guy was the muscle and not the brains. Uh, And then not an action but I have been in a cave with a bunch of bats, and that also is very scary. Uh, I've never had them swarm around my head, but I can not. I can only imagine how how absolutely just disorienting and f- fear inducing that that would be. With it seemed like thousands of bats in that cave. Funny you mention that because both Stallone and Turner, who plays Jesse were terrified of bats. They do not like live bats. So what they did was they put digitized CGI bats in there 
Like they had real ones in there and they said, no, we can't do this. Interesting choices for whether CGI versus what they so did. They, yeah. So they, they put in, they put in uh, some special effect bats and they edited it pretty well where, you know, you couldn't quite tell. It wasn't quite Goonies, the bats coming out of the, uh, the fireplace, but, but, uh, it was, uh, yeah, but they were both really terrified of bats. They didn't want them. So there you go. Not, you're not the only one who doesn't like bats in caves. I love that scene down there though, because it's, um, you know, it, it, I can feel the cold. So we talk a little bit about movies like the abyss and how it creates this atmosphere of like isolation and cold because of the cinematography. This didn't have that like all the time, but there were moments like when the fire is being built and he makes that funny joke or down there in the ice cave, I almost expected like this white uh, creature to come out and kill them like he tries to do with Luke Skywalker and Empire Strikes Back. But I, I love the climbing. I, I love the, the, the resourcefulness cinematographically of that, whether it was real or not. I, I like the fact that you see them you know, climbing up ropes and swinging across. You know, Nathan Drake would have done it better, in my opinion. But there were there were so many opportunities for Stallone's athleticism and his his strength to be put on full display. One of my favorite moments is when he's popping out of the cave and Kinnett sees him before they drop down into the cave for the final fight with the stalactite. He he looks away and then he brings his arm up out of the snow and slices Kinnett's like Achilles heel or something. It's it's just that kind of stuff and it's in slow motion that just show off how strong Stallone was. It was this movie, Rocky Four, and I think Commando, that he was. He says he was in the best shape of his life. These movies he trained the hardest for, and you could see it. Like from the moment, look, it's 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 a visual eye candy shot of him at the very beginning, going, "I'm just hanging out, Jess." He's like, "Look at my muscles. I'm awesome." Do I believe that you're a mountaineer? No, but I believe that you're an action star who looks great hanging from an icy cliff. Okay, and that's all that most audiences care about. And if I need somebody to come save me, I hope that yes. it's you who they yeah. call. <laughs> don't bring Frank. Let him have the helicopter. I'll be confident. Yeah, yeah don't don't even bring Hal. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, he's Mary Poppins, man. Unless Yondu's <laughs> unless it's Yondu coming with his true, spaceship. True. Like, yeah, to he get meets me his arrow. The that's then, slice then you through. can do it, but yeah, not Hal. Now there would be something <laughs> if you had a Guardians moment where like the arrow starts coming out and slicing villains' ankles like <laughs> instead of that. <laughs> Would love to see that. <laughs> whistling everywhere i guess the travers kill was cool too uh we didn't mention that but like oh the whole he goes in the ice and then he goes leans down over the ice and he shoots him up through the ice was that with a gun or up... was that with like a um it looked like a, a different kind it wasn't i don't think it was a traditional bulleted gun that he shot. i don't think it was a firearm yeah i think it was something more like a, i think it was that thing that they like the bolt gun. it was a bolt gun i think yeah the bolt gun. yeah because yeah he was clearly more bloody than he would have been just getting shot with bullets oh yeah yeah, I yeah, thought that was, was that was pretty fantastic. All right, well, that's going to wrap up this edition of Feelin' Film. Next week, we are moving into the year 2000, where we take on Vertical Limit, starring Chris O'Donnell and some other people. <laughs> Not as highly revered, but we're going to take a shot at it anyway. Hope it's a good conversation. It should be. We always have a good one here on Feelin' Film. So come back for that one. Enjoy that conversation. In the meantime, Aaron, thank you for this one, and we will talk soon.